Bibles, if you would please, and open them to 1 John chapter 2. And we are privileged, I think, to have this book of 1 John in our Bible because here John has revealed to us some ways that a Christian can know absolutely for sure that he's really a child of God. This was something that was very much needed in the time of John. Uh, There were so many competing philosophies, uh, people that were coming into the church and upsetting the fellowship of the church and teaching false doctrines. And these people had grown up in a culture in which uh, they worshiped many, many different gods, and they never really thought of their gods of having a personal relationship with them. We talked about the word propitiation for quite some time, and I mentioned how the people in this particular culture were quite certain their gods were angry. They were angry about things, but they never saw that it was because of a lack of righteousness, a lack of holiness on the part of the individual. In fact, if you study Greek and Roman mythology, you'll find that the gods themselves were flawed. They actually believed they were flawed. And so uh, the anger of the gods caused many of the catastrophes they thought that went on in their lives and in the world. Greek and Roman gods had human characteristics, and that's what we would expect, especially after reading the Apostle Paul when he said that the Gentiles had changed, the, changed God into images like corruptible man. And when Paul was preaching to the Athenians, he remarked about all the great temples that they had, and he said, God doesn't need places like this to live in. God is the one who gives us life and breath and all things, everything that we need for life. But there was no understanding of God in that way to those people. And so they never approached their religion uh, in a a manner in which they thought that the gods were righteous and the gods would demand anything from them, any holiness, any righteousness. So the standard was them. The standard was how they lived. And it never got any higher than that. And you can imagine that a man living by his own standard is not going to be a very good man, at least by what we know now. The Bible teaches the depravity of the human heart. It says that people do evil continually. And you can imagine what happened when you had that Greek mythological thought and that Greek philosophical thought mixed in with the Christian religion. What you actually had was people who thought that the Christian God was just another God, just like the gods that they had. And the people themselves weren't very much different than they were before. And so the people that John was talking to or writing to here uh, had been mixed up with these philosophical thoughts and people had come in there, people that claimed to be Christian. They didn't look very much different from the old pagans that they knew in the past. And in fact, they weren't because they, weren't because they were, were mixed up about the issue of sin and the personal nature of, of righteousness that God requires from each of us. So this is why we have First John. That's why it was written, to expose fake Christians and give real Christians assurance of the faith and know how they could know, or know particularly how they know they could be saved. Well, in in, in our study tonight, we see one of the ways that John proposes to test a real profession. How can you know that you're a Christian? And what we've been looking at here is a moral test. You can call it a, a test of obedience if you want because that's what it is a real christian is someone who obeys god he's a living witness of the character of god so a fake christian doesn't obey he's not a living witness but he is a lying witness and that confusion is still among us today because there are many christians that say that they know the lord but they really don't have any evidence of it our assurance of salvation is grounded in the tests that are given here there are three of them a doctrinal test 
There is a moral test and there is a social test. And we're dealing with the moral test now. So if we look in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 3, John says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Verse 3 says, Hereby we do know that we know him. Verse 5 says, Hereby know we that we are in him. So a positive result from this test will be assurance. And that's the goal of the letter. To give confused Christians proof that they really know God. Well, who is God? Can you really know him? Well, this is how we started out last week. The first part of the message was the possibility of knowing God. And the possibility is evident by the numbers of times that that John uses the word know in these five chapters. Knowing God is not outside of the realm of possibility. But we do have to understand that God, uh, who God really is, know him in the right way. Some didn't think that you could know God. Some then didn't think that you could know God, and some people today don't think that you can know God. Uh, They don't deny that there is a God, but they believe that it's impossible to really know him and have a personal relationship with him. And there's an interesting term for those kinds of people. We call them agnostics. John was having trouble with the Gnostics. These were people who claimed to know something but didn't know what they thought that they knew. But an agnostic is somebody who doesn't claim to know anything. And, you know, I'm really, really have wondered about that term or people that, that call themselves agnostic because they act like they're intellectually superior if they're agnostics. You ask them, what do you know about God? Oh, oh, I'm an agnostic. And they act like that put them up on a higher plane or something when really all that means, I don't know anything. So John says we can know God. I mean, there's no reason for us to be ignorant of him. And the Greeks thought that you could know God too. That just the problem is they didn't know how to know him in the right way. So last week I gave you two ways that you can't know God. We'll briefly discuss those. One was educational knowledge. Uh, They thought that you could know God by superior intellect. Or they thought it's possible that you can find out God by reason and logic. And so they tried to uh, uncover the unseen, the invisible, biological, philosophical approach. And that same thing is Christianized today. We just approach it in a little bit different way. And that is that we try to get education. We go to church. We bone up on Bible stories. We uh, get Bible education. We attend classes. We fill up with all kinds of information and never worry about actually transformation. Well, there were others among the Greeks who thought that information or educational knowledge was not quite enough. You do have to have more than that. And so they depended upon emotional knowledge. They said, we need to feel God. It's not just what you think. It also has to come from what you feel. And so logically, that feeling must be a good feeling. If you know God, it must be a good feeling. Well, if you have no ethical standard of righteousness other than yourself, then what kind of feel-good things would you do? We don't need much explanation of that one, do we? We know what the human heart does. And that thought has also been Christianized. Did you know that there are actually churches that have classes with live demonstrations about how to have better sex? Now, that's that's the more radical side of it. But it's 
the big thing in, in churches today to have an emotional feeling, some kind of emotional way that you can know God. And it can come all the way from the strict holiness of Pentecostals with the tongues movement all the way to the loose morality of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. So those are two ways that you can't know God. You can't know him educationally or emotionally. Neither of those is right. But the third way, which I said I was going to save for you tonight, is knowing him in the right way. And that's to know God experientially. Experiential knowledge. It's not what you think with your head. Your head, it's not what you feel in your bones. It's not what at all. It's who. Real knowledge is who you know. And it's personal, it's practical, and it's objective. And you'll notice in the last part of verse 5 again, it says, Hereby know we that we are in him. Him is Christ. And the knowledge of him manifests itself in a profound change in your life. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I love to visit historical sites. I, I like American history. Uh, every chance that I get, I go and visit historical places. Last year... I was in the northeastern part of the United States, and I traveled all over the New England states. I was all by myself, and I would stop, and I would read historical markers, and, and I would uh, check out all the historical places. I went to Fort Ticonderoga on Lake Champlain. I went into uh, Vermont and New Hampshire and took pictures of, of old wooden bridges, covered wooden bridges and things like that. I was on my way back and I stopped in Gettysburg and went to the Civil War battlefield and, and also I stopped in West Virginia to an, at an old coal mining uh, camp there and just looked over those things. You know, uh, I can get education out of that. In fact, I can sometimes even get emotional about those things because I'm proud to be an American. I went to Gettysburg and look at some of the things that went on there and, and uh, wow, I mean, they're just... just and Fort Ticonderoga, I mentioned that a minute ago. You think about the Revolutionary War and, and getting our country started. You know, I can get emotional about those things because I'm glad, I am proud that I am an American. But when I went to see those places, visited all of that, I didn't come away from that a changed person. That, that didn't do anything for me. I mean, I'm, I, when I went to Gettysburg, I didn't have any, any compunction to put on a Civil War uniform and jump on a horse and ride across the battlefield like I was in Pickett's Charge. Notwithstanding Gary's reenactments and things that he likes to do. So, but I, I, you know, I wasn't going to do that. I, that, that. That didn't hit me in that way. So my lifestyle was not radically altered by the things I saw and things that I experienced. But it's completely different when you know Jesus. Because when you know him, it radically alters your conduct. It makes you a completely different person. You know, I mentioned a moment ago that man is depraved. The Bible teaches that we are born in sin. Born sinners. But when you get saved, you're actually born again. And so you have a whole different life from what you were before. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And if there isn't a change in you, then you really don't know God. Because this is what happens when a person knows Christ. There is a change, and it will be demonstrated. Now I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 9, if you would, for just a minute. Jeremiah 9, uh, Judah was in a desperate need for revival. We talked about that on a Sunday morning a few weeks ago. The prophets and the priests were of no help because they were turning a blind eye to idolatry. They even encouraged people in idolatry. So there was no activity in Judah at all that would tell you that these people were the chosen people of God. 
Jeremiah preached for 40 years and not one convert, not anybody, turned and, and walked after God. Now, just as John says that true knowledge manifests itself in a changed life and obedience to God, the Old Testament prophets taught the very same thing. Jeremiah said in chapter 9, verse number 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For all these things, in all these, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. See, there's a huge difference in the lives of those that truly know God because they do what God does. Those who really glorify God know what God expects of them. So their delight, their glory, is not in in impersonal things. It's not in their wisdom. It's not in their strength. It's not in their riches. Their glory is to do the will of God. That's the desire. So we differentiate in these types of knowledge. Education and emotions, those are not ways of knowing God, but experience. The kind of experience that transforms evil motives, transforms desires, the thought processes into things that delight God. That's the right way to know him. Now we need to expand on that thought a little bit for the second part of this, and that is the reality of knowing God. I mean, we've moved from the mere possibility. We know that it's possible to know him in the right way. So we have to say, well, how, how does it become real? How, how, do you, how does that real to you? Well, you have to start with this. You must start with faith. Knowledge is formed by faith. Now, in my preaching, I'm fond of pointing out that in the logical order of salvation, regeneration must precede repentance and faith. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that right now, but it is impossible for a spiritually dead person to repent and trust Christ. Now, that's true. I believe that that's true, but you'll never, going to, you'll never hear me say that regeneration can be separated from repentance and faith. They go together. So you can't have a regenerated person who doesn't have faith, and you can't have faith if you're not a regenerated person. The logical order is that faith flows out of regeneration. Regeneration is completely monergistic. That means that God alone works regeneration. But faith is not the same. Now, faith is given by God, but faith is synergistic. God does not believe for you. You have to believe. It would make sense that God believes for you, so you have to exercise faith. We often say that regeneration occurs beneath the consciousness of man. I mean, there's a superintendence of the will of God that changes the person in the inner being so that his natural inclination, which is to reject the gospel, has been overcome. God actually makes a person so that they are willing to believe, enables him to believe. And you're conscious of that. You're conscious of faith. I mean, as I said a moment ago, you express faith. So there is a time that you consciously know that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And we never deny that that is the truth. The Holy Spirit works in you to bring you to faith. Now, now to us, that sounds like a function of time. And, and I think that's where most of the confusion comes in. We think that this has to be a step-by-step process because we say, well, regeneration logically precedes repentance and faith. I mean, as I said a moment ago, you can't have a dead person that repents. You have to be made alive before you can repent. But we look at it like that has to be step by step by step. So we think, well, what we should be able to do is put a stopwatch on that. Put a clock on it. Time one movement to the other. 
But that's not the way that God works. God works supernaturally. And it doesn't have, we, we, we can't even think of it as a process of time. Now, I don't know how it's all figured out. God does it. God separates all of that, the repentance or the regeneration, the repentance and faith. He's responsible for separating it all out, make sure it occurs in the right order, and I'll leave that to him. I just know that's the way it has to happen. Here's what Jesus said in John 3, 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. That is the same thing as saying that you have no control over the Spirit. He works when and where he wants. And all that you ever see is the effects of his working. It's like you see leaves that are blowing on the trees when the, when the wind goes through. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. Well, faith is the effect of the Spirit moving in regeneration. And that's something that you experience just like your eyes see the, tr- the leaves that are blowing on the tree. So you're conscious of faith that when the Spirit regenerates, you can believe and you mentally make that decision to believe. Repentance and faith are inseparable because the realization that you are a sinner cut off from God and that your sins have offended the holiness and righteousness of God causes you to be so sorrowful that you can't do anything else but to repent and trust Christ to save you. That's the whole point of the Holy Spirit working in the heart through the gospel of Christ. So it all starts there. Assurance is born in faith itself. And that's why the scriptures, the writers of scriptures are so adamant about this. Make sure that your faith is real. No assurance could ever come, assurance can ever come from a faith that's not real. And what we're showing here is that the confirmation of real faith is the keeping of commandments, the things that you do in your life. Real faith, the confirmation of real faith is obedience. So real faith or real knowledge, rather, is begun in faith, and you experience faith. And when you have experienced faith, then you know that you have also experienced the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's another thing about, about faith. Real faith, by necessity, must also mean that you believe the Scriptures. You can't reject the Bible and still call that real faith. You can't, ex- you can't reject the Bible as being the real Word of God. And a church that never preaches the Bible could never hope to, to, pr- to produce real faith in its converts. You can't do that because the Word of God says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So if a church does not preach from the Bible, there is no way that people can be converted. Because that's what God uses to regenerate people. Now follow me here in this. You're saved by belief of this testimony of Scripture of what Christ did about his redemptive work, about the cross and all of those things, the resurrection from the dead, you believe that spiritual testimony that's given in the Bible. And the same Scriptures are the ones that tell you if you believe that, you're saved. So the Bible tells you that real faith brings with it assurance that you know God. A faith that does not produce cannot be a real faith. So it's as simple as that. Real faith, I mean, the the beginnings of this, of assurance, are found in faith. Knowing God is, first of all, found in faith. So knowledge is formed by faith. Secondly, knowledge is sealed by the Spirit. Now let's turn, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 8. 
Uh, Romans 8 is really a great chapter on assurance. I mean, you know the verses that we use all the time, verses 28 through 30, and that, those verses are foundational for assurance. The greatest proof of our eternal security is that God chose us and that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, that is the foundation of our assurance, the eternal purposes of God. Well, the chapter goes on and it finishes out with Paul saying in a most emphatic way that nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. And so we study those things. And we, t- we take off at verse number 28 in Romans and we run down through the end of the chapter and we repeat that and repeat that and repeat that because those are such important scriptures about assurance. But we don't want to forget the beginning of the chapter because assurance is found there as well. Verse number 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, listen, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now that sounds quite a bit like John, doesn't it? He says, if if you're in Christ, you're not going to walk like you did before. He said, if he that abides in him ought himself to walk even as he walked. Verse number 2, Romans chapter 8. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So you can start laying down assurance right there that you have the right righteousness. You walk in a way that delights the Lord. Just like Jeremiah says, God loves righteousness. Now go all the way down to verse 15. Later you can read the verses that are in between. But verse 15 says, For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, the intervening verses there repeat that theme that those who know God do not act like they acted before. The old way of life has been put to death. Now you walk in the will of the Father. Now you follow Him. And the Holy Spirit is witnessing inside of you over and over and over again that you are, in fact, God's child. And you may say, well, what does that mean? You mean he's whispering in my ear? Is that how the Holy Spirit speaks to me? Am I going to have this kind of an emotional experience with that then? And the answer to that is no. The chief way that the Holy Spirit witnesses to you is through the Word of God. True knowledge of God always comes back to the Bible, the Word of God in some way or another. You, you, you have to read the Bible. And if you do, the, the Spirit, if you're a saved person, continually shows you truth. And so here's the thing, folks. If you stay out of the Bible, you're not going to have much truth. And you're not going to have much knowledge. And so therefore, you won't have very much assurance. Your assurance is found in God's Word. That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Now, how many of you have ever done this? You've been reading the Bible. And all of a sudden, while you're reading, some truth leaps out at you. I mean, something you've never, never even noticed before. Maybe you were confused about it. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to you, but all of a sudden, man, just like that, it clicks and you know it. You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit witnessing to you through the Word of God. That's a great feeling. You know that? It really is a great feeling. All of a sudden, to have that light bulb come on. I mean, just you realize the truth. Well, the thing that many Christians do is that they faithfully ignore the Scriptures rather than faithfully explore them. 
And that's why they don't have very much assurance. Adam Clark wrote this. He said, We have the utmost evidence of the fact of our adoption which we can possibly have. We have the Word and the Spirit of God. And the Word sealed on our spirit by the Spirit of God. And this is not a momentary influx. If we take care to walk with God and not grieve the Holy Spirit, we shall have an abiding testimony. And while we continue faithful to our adopting Father, the Spirit that witnesses that adoption will continue to witness it. And hereby we shall know that we are of God by the Spirit which he giveth us. So we see then that we're progressing here. Our knowledge of God begins in faith. When we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us and then the Spirit witnesses to us on the inside that we are the children of God. So walking in the light keeps assuring us that we are God's people and the Holy Spirit is really there. Well, what happens then? If the Holy Spirit is really there, what happens then? Well, the knowledge is confirmed by commandments. Now we're right back where we started. I call this a lot of times the rubber meeting the road. We're full circle here back to John's test. How do you know that you are a child of God? And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, and him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So we get established by faith. The foundation is laid in faith. Then the Spirit witnesses to us. That's how we realize his presence. And when you have those, and both of them are real, they are confirmed by the continuance of walking in the commandments, keeping the commandments. Now, what does this expression really mean? What does it really mean to keep the commandments? Well, let me give you three essential parts of this. What it means to keep the commandments. Number one is embracing the authority of the word. The first thing that you recognize is that God has the right to command obedience. Now understand this. John John doesn't mean obeying all the ceremonial laws that you find in the Old Testament. He's not speaking here of the laws of sacrifices and dietary laws and all of those things. He means what Christ commanded. In the Great Commission... What what does that say? It says, go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe all things that Christ has commanded. Christ told his disciples, all power is given to me. And you know what that actually means? The word actually means authority. All authority is given to me. And I think that the problem with many Christians is that they have no respect for authority. Well, pardon my vice here for just a minute, uh, of what, my vice of watching Judge Judy. I need a t-shirt that says, all I ever needed to know I learned from Judge Judy. But if, if you ever watch that, how do people react in her courtroom? I mean, to me, I mean, you got Judge Judy there and she's talking to these people. She says, do this. And she says, shut up. Get your hands out of your pocket. Stand up straight. And here are these adults that are listening to her in this courtroom, and they do everything she says. I mean, they obey her sheepishly. I mean, they do it. And she's downright mean about it. Now, here we have a loving shepherd. The Bible says that we are the sheep of his pasture, and we do not sheepishly obey. Instead, we we don't respect the authority. We say, do I have to? 
I mean, do I really have to obey this? Do I have to do this? We don't respect the authority of God's Word, which is where we get the commandments. And what have I just said? The authority of God's Word comes from who? It comes from the authority himself. It comes from Jesus Christ. All power is given to me. In other words, it's I am the authority. And here are the words of Christ. So if you don't obey the words of Christ, what does it mean? You do not respect Christ. You don't respect his authority. So we have to take God's word as the authority because the one who said it has authority. And then also, keeping the commandments, number two is guarding the truth. Now I want you to turn over in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And hang around there in the First Peter area for a while here because we're going to read some more in just a minute. But First Peter chapter 1, I really like verse number 2. There it talks about elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That's, that's the great foundation of assurance. But I want you to look at verse number 5. First Peter 1 verse number 5. It says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed, to be revealed at the last time. Now look at the word kept. That word means to be kept or to have the same thing as a guardian, to have a sentinel, to have a watchman over you. Peter is trying to get across the idea here that God guards our souls. He garrisons us. He, it's just like putting us inside of a fort. Well, the word kept there is the very same word that John uses when he talks about keeping the commandments. Only John is not talking about us uh, doing what Peter says here. He's talking about God's power to keep us. He's talking about us guarding the commandments. Now, that doesn't mean guarding them like keeping somebody from stealing them. But what it means is that we are acutely aware of them. That we are so respectful of God's commandments that we don't do this. I mean, we don't, it's not like walking a six-inch wide plank on top of a fence. And sometimes you fall over one way, and sometimes you fall over the other way. Keeping the commandments, guarding the truth, is that you get way over here. And you stay away from the edge altogether so that you don't even get close to it. You stay over in the righteousness and the loving kindness of God. You make sure you're doing the things that God delights in. You're fully immersed in God's word and in his righteousness so that you dare not get too close to the edge. Now think about it for a moment. Is that the way that you live? Do you guard God's commandments? Or are you tweeting out and Facebooking out little, little foul innuendos? I mean, do you barely keep your speech above gutter talk, if at all? What kind of things do you have in your home? What do people see when they come in here? What can they look at there? You know, I find it hard to believe also, and I mentioned this last week... I find it hard to believe that late nights out ever come to very much good. What kind of things do you read? Consider that. How close are you getting to the edge? And you see what I mean? There's an attitude that has to be right. Now, if most people that know you have no idea that you're a Christian, then you haven't done very much to guard the commandments, have you? You know, some people say, well, I'm a Christian, and they've convinced themselves of that because they have redefined what a Christian is. They've got a special definition for it, and somehow or another, they meet the definition, and they're satisfied with that. And that is exactly what John faced. He faced a bunch of hypocrites that acted like the devil while claiming that they were the children of God. Those two things don't go together. 
It's impossible for them to go together. And that's why we read in the book of Matthew that Jesus says in the end, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, thirdly, lastly here, keeping the commandments means obeying the new covenant. Obeying the new covenant. Question you might ask is, do I have to be perfect? And what if I'm really trying to serve God, but sometimes I sin? For most professing Christians that are really really lying instead of really living. It's not a matter of of how many commandments they keep. It's whether they keep any of them at all. I mean, is there any fruit at all in their lives? But the answer to the question, do I have to be perfect? The answer is no. Perfect obedience is not what God asks. That might seem a little bit contrary, doesn't it? Perfect obedience is not what God asks. No, you see, because God gives us the aptitude, but we have to have the attitude. That's the difference between the two. We have to have an attitude that we want to obey God. Because the new covenant is so gracious that God accepts imperfect obedience. Verse number 1 explained that. It said we have an advocate with the Father. And uh, our advocate is the one that's righteous even though we're not. The advocate is the one who gave his blood to heal up all of the defects that we have. So we do our very best to have that attitude that we do want to serve God and when we fall into sin that bothers us we don't want to live in sin we want to get away from it but we realize we we, we're not going to be perfect until we leave this life so our attitude about it has to be right so if you don't have the attitude then you're not a real Christian so what does your life have to look like then well listen to what Peter says this time we go over to second Peter chapter one second Peter chapter one verse number one Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Lord, of our, and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him, that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the key to all of that is in verse number 5, where it says, giving all diligence. That phrase is actually emphatic in the original language, and it means with all earnestness. It means to be eager about this. That's the attitude that I'm talking about, giving all diligence. Now, if you're eager then to do this, to add virtue to your faith, to add knowledge to your virtue, temperance to your knowledge, patience to your temperance, godliness to your patience, and all those things listed down there through verse number 8, what happens when you give diligence to that? Well, it says that you will have fruit in the knowledge of Christ. So that means that you just got the assurance that you do know him. 
And that's because your heart had the desire to walk with him. Now we skip down to verse number 10. Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter says do this and you can be sure that you're one of God's children. So John knows what he's talking about. I mean, this is the test, he says. You may not be perfect. None of us are perfect. But he says in verse number 5, back there in first number John, first John chapter 2, the love of God is perfected in us when we obey. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that God loves us more or less because we keep commandments. That can never be. But it means that we prove our love for him. People that straddle the fence and most of the time are following over into disobedience rather than obeying God. The scripture says, you don't really know God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that's the test that John gives us in these verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we do thank you, Lord, that you've given us something that we can look at in our lives to tell that we really do know you. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to wonder about it. Your, your spirit produces these things in us if we really do know you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be obedient Christians and we would find the assurance that we need because our hearts have been actually purified by faith in you. So, Lord, we just pray that you bless our people. Uh, thank you for bringing them here tonight to hear your word. May we all be strengthened in having heard it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.